A.W. Tozer wrote, The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What in your deep heart do you conceive God to be like? Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung suggests many people envision a God who's either walking around with cookies or a clipboard. He says the clipboard God is always looking over your shoulder, always noticing, always saying, uh-huh, yep, okay, sorry you're not looking too good today. He says, some of us understand God to be like Santa Claus in that he's keeping a list and interested to find out who's being naughty and who's being nice. But he says, most of us have the cookie God. He's always walking around saying, are you okay? Have a cookie. You messed up? You get him next time, tiger. Here, have a cookie. It's okay, I made you cookies. DeYoung tries to use humor as pointing out these two fairly common, polar, usually mutually exclusive views that people have of God. He is either a God of extravagant mercy or he's a God of impending judgment. Yet if we leave it up to God to tell us what he is like, we will find from our scripture this morning that he's not one or the other he is both. That's what Moses is learning as we pick up the text in Exodus 34. Now, two weeks ago in this passage, we spent the lion's share of our time focusing on verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. The Lord who is merciful and gracious and patient, full of steadfast love and forgiveness. And this morning, we're going to round out our picture of the Lord a bit with the rest of verse 7. The rest of what God revealed about himself to Moses, that the God of mercy is also the one who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is willing to forgive and at the same time will assuredly punish the guilty. I think the NIV translation says that. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will not clear the guilty. Now, when I read that latter part of verse 7, the, the first thing I want to know is, who is God not going to clear? Who, who are the guilty? And we know, we know from a general sense of Scripture that, that everyone is guilty. To a degree, all we know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know the Bible teaches that there is none, none righteous, not even one. We know that nobody, no matter how moral of a life they have led, is sinless. Therefore, nobody is without guilt. Everyone but Jesus. From the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden till now, and into the future, of course, has been, is, or will be guilty of sin. So the pressing question in light of this truth in verse 6 and 7 would be, how does one become not guilty? How does, how does one get cleared? If God is, is going to punish those who aren't cleared, how does one get 
cleared? And the answer is by receiving forgiveness. Prophet Isaiah graphically describes what God is willing to do for us in forgiving us. When he wrote, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white. That's what God is willing to do. Willing to cleanse us from sin. The next question, though, is who is he going to do it for? Who will he do it for? Who does God forgive? And the answer to that is found in how variations of our text from Exodus 34 show up in other scriptures. In Joel 2. The prophet is speaking to those who have wandered from the Lord. This too is a universal experience, a universal human experience. Just in the same way that sin is universal to us all, so is this idea of wandering. Now, some people will take issue with that and say, oh, I don't wander. I've never wandered. Well, good for you. But I think here's the truth. It's quite possible to wander and not even know you're doing it. I think of, and furthermore, I have a little scripture to back me up. I wouldn't sound so confident if I didn't. That would be Isaiah, right? Saying, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Okay? But I think of the prodigal son, that parable in Luke 15. We all know about the prodigal son, the one who took off and lived wantonly and blew his father's money, his inheritance, and whatnot. But there was another son, and we're going to get to that, Lord willing, in our study of the parables here, coming in 2020. There was another son who stayed with the father. And in his mind, I think he thought he was faithful, and he thought that he wasn't wandering. But the reality is, when he was resentful of his brother's return and he couldn't celebrate with him, his father had to expose him and say, you might have been with me this whole time, but you don't share my heart. See, the older brother had wandered too. You don't have to go far to wander. You can be in church. Wander. So here in Joel 2, the prophet is speaking to those who have wandered from the Lord, which is something we can relate to. And he says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Here's what to do if you realize you're a wanderer. Return with fasting and weeping and mourning. He says, rend your heart and not your garments, which is, a, which is a way of saying you can express remorse and sorrow, but you can do that in a superficial way. So don't do that. Don't, don't tear your garments. Don't break your, don't tear your garments. Tear your heart. Be brokenhearted. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. That the ones who receive mercy are the ones who return to God. The ones God forgives are those who, in godly sorrow, are willing to turn from their sin and go back to him. We would say in a biblical vernacular, uh, these are the ones who repent. To repent is to turn and go in a different direction. To leave the way of sin and go toward God. And God holds back punishment on the repentant. That's what the scriptures teach, which also means that the converse of that is true. God's wrath is reserved then for those who will not repent. God's, God's wrath will rest on those who will not turn. Jonah 3, 8 to 4, 2 is a similar passage. It has a similar idea. 
You probably are familiar with this story. The prophet Jonah is sent to Nineveh to preach God's message to the wayward Ninevites. Jonah has no use for the Ninevites. He doesn't like them. They're rather unsavory characters. He doesn't want to see them saved. But God's message is that if they would turn from their wicked ways, if they would give up their evil, if they would turn toward him, then he would relent. He would not deliver on the judgment that was promised. Amazingly, Jonah took this message to this bunch of heathens, and they repented. They did exactly that. They turned. They turned away from their sin toward God, and God did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, we should celebrate over something like that, right? God, God extends mercy to those who are willing to, to turn to him. These are the people who get compassion. These are the people who are spared from punishment. So we should celebrate that. And Jonah was really happy about that, right? If you remember the story. Now, if you remember the story, you know Jonah is angry with God. He cannot believe this has happened. Actually, he knew it would. He says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, Jonah was greatly displeased. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? I don't, I don't know about the audacity, honestly, of saying to God, I told you so. But that's what he's doing. I, I told you so. Isn't this what I was talking about? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. You might remember he went the wrong direction, trying to get away from the Lord's work, because he didn't want to do it. But here, listen, here's the real condemnation of God. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What an awful thing to accuse God of. Huh? This man who himself is an object of grace is, is holding it against God that God is a gracious God. Jonah quotes Exodus 34, 6 as he accuses God of being exactly consistent with who he said he is. Consistent. So his lack of grace here is quite astounding and could be fodder for a whole other sermon, which we won't preach this morning, because it's not our concern today, but for our purposes, this story teaches that those who believe God, who are willing to turn from their sin, who will surrender their ways to his ways, these are the ones who are spared. These are the ones God forgives. And those who choose to remain in sin, and that is their choice, will not be forgiven. They will be guilty. They will not be cleared. And the reason that we know that is because God is a holy God, and sin is a serious matter. And we have covered this territory before in our journey through Exodus, so we won't cover it again. I like what Phil Riken says, though. He says, many people prefer to think of God as a kindly old grandfather who smiles indulgently on the sins of his grandchildren. It is true. Grandfathers let grandkids get away with more than they let their own kids get away with. And so we might see, well, maybe God's just going to give us a pass the way I'd give the grandkids a pass. But Riken wants to remind us, no, that's not the God of the Bible. Our definition of God, he says, is not complete unless it includes his divine justice. 
In other words, our God and the God of, a Bible, of the Bible is not a God who winks at sin. When Jesus was teaching through the towns and villages, making his way to Jerusalem, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And we read about this in Luke chapter 13. Jesus starts off answering and he says, strive, the word he says, strive, which is translated make an effort or make every effort, which comes from a Greek word that means to struggle, means to contend, it means to compete for, as, as in to compete for a prize. Like put a lot of effort into this, strive, make it happen that you enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Apart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Jesus says, fight for this. Labor towards this. Make every effort to make this happen. To enter through this narrow door. This is not something that you're supposed to be passive about. This is not something that you just wait around expecting and hoping that it might happen. This isn't the kind of thing that you want to put off till the final moment and then say, I think what I will do is live how I want and make a mad dash as I see that door of opportunity closing. And I will slide in at the last second. That way I can do whatever I want and in the end... I get, get heaven. Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that. This is not something to wait around and expect to happen. This is something to make happen. This is what you do when, like Israel, you have done what you should not have done. You turn and you make your way for that narrow door. This is what to do if you have never approached the narrow door of God's kingdom. You don't wait. You go. You go now. Because at some point, Jesus says, the master of the house will rise. And he will rise and he will close the door. And those who are inside will be eternally in. And those who are out will be eternally shut Those who are in will be eternally safe. Those who are out will be condemned forever to a place where there is weeping and gnashing. Because the God who is willing to forgive sin is the same God who will assuredly punish. When we think of God and what he is like. We must be true to scripture, don't you believe? And scripture teaches us, God's revelation of himself is that he is a God of justice and a God of mercy. Not one or the other. Both. And not coincidentally, beloved, 
This is just the kind of God we need. Not coincidentally, this is the kind of God that we need. Now, think about this. If God were only mercy and no justice, would not we likely continue in sin to our own detriment, ultimately, and to the shame of his name? Isn't that our bent? That is our bent. This is what we would do. Where does that phrase come from? Give them an inch and they take a... Know it. So if God is all mercy and no justice, would not we, just by our nature, presume on his grace like the wealthy spoiled brat who overspends his monthly allowance knowing that there's no real consequence for it? That's how we are. That's how we are. If God were only justice and no mercy, if God were to mark our missteps as soon as we made them, if God were to note our failures before our face every time we committed one, if God were to punish us for our transgressions as they occur, how long would it take before we would be completely exasperated and know that we are utterly hopeless? Because even on our best day, we sin and we fail. So we need a God who deals severely with sin and with unrepentant sin, but we also need a God who's slow to anger, who's quick to forgive. And the good news is that is the God of the Bible. I don't know why we want to make up our own version of God. We cannot do better than what is stated in the Bible. This is the God of Bible. This is what God is like. This is who he is. This is how he is. This is the revelation of God that was given to Moses when Moses said, God, show me your glory. And instead of showing what he, what he looks like, he tells him how he is, what he is like. This is who I am. And as soon as Moses heard that, Moses, the guy who's saying, at least it seems like he's saying, oh, give me a look. I just want to get a look at you, God. I just want to see what you look like. Moses now, who wants to see the glory of God, immediately casts his eyes to the ground. The man who wants to see God all of a sudden knows, I can't see this. I'm not worthy of this. This is too much. This is too good. Moses made haste. He bowed his head, verse 8 says, toward the earth and worship. And that, that word translated worship means to prostrate, to bow down, to fall down, to stoop. It's the same um, word used by the psalmist in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Three times the psalmist is saying in three different ways, let's humble ourselves before God. Let's take the proper posture before our king and in the presence of our king. And that's exactly what Moses did hurriedly, without hesitation. I would say to anybody, and the psalm does too, today if you would hear his voice, today if you would hear his voice, now would be the time to humble yourself as Moses did and begin to worship him. Not to put it off, not to wait, not to, not to sleuth it out anymore. If you hear God speaking and he reveals himself to you, that is the time to bow your head toward earth and begin to declare his worth what Moses does in his worship, then leads to confession. 
And I think one reason that worship, good worship, leads to confession is because the holiness of God that we experience in worship illuminates our unholiness. The purity of God illuminates our impurity. The perfection of God reveals our imperfection. And I think maybe that might be one reason that some people are reluctant even to engage in a relationship with God. Because the, the closer you draw near to that, the more you realize I'm found wanting. I, I don't measure up. I'm not who I want to be. I'm not even who I say I would be. And at times the picture's not a pretty one. So we, we keep God at, at bay because of the very fact that his presence illuminates who we really are. I just want to tell you that if you feel that way, he already knows how you are and who you are. And he loves you still. But you don't have to feel that way. He knows who you are and how you are. So you can draw near to him. And the scripture says if you draw near to him, then he will draw near to you. Maybe that's some of the peace that you're looking for in this world. The worship that Moses engages in leads to confession. Leads to confession. Praise, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. I want you to notice that Moses agrees with God's assessment of Israel. They are indeed a stiff-necked people. That's the term that God used to describe them. They have been, and they are stubborn, and they are rebellious, and they are resistant to the leadership of God, and they are undeserving of God's favor. And Moses is clear about that. We are a stiff-necked people. Notice also that he doesn't make excuses for Israel's behavior. I don't know if you do this. I know I sure have. Sometimes when our wrongs become apparent, when our flaws are brought to light, we react by justifying them. I'm this way because. You go ahead and fill in the blank and fill in the blame. But it's somebody else's fault. I wouldn't have done that if she didn't do this. I wouldn't be this way if he didn't do that. Have you ever heard anything like that before, or am I just the only one? I wouldn't do that normally, except I'll find an excuse. These are extenuating circumstances. I know what the Bible says, but. That's the one I hear frequently. I know the Bible says I should do this, but. How we are. We have learned in our biblical peacemaking class recently how important it is for us to get the log out of our own eye, to acknowledge our own part in a conflict. And we have learned how not to confess, how not to confess to others or to the Lord. For instance, you don't say, I'm sorry if I've done something to offend you when you know doggone well you have done something to offend them. And you don't say, I'm sorry for what I've done, but, because anything that follows the but negates the apology. Once we, once we throw the but in there, we're beginning to justify the behavior. Make sense? 
Moses didn't do that at all. There's no justification here. There's no minimization. Those things don't belong in a proper confession. Here in verse 9, he calls it what it is. And again, it's not pretty, but what's he going to do about it? Moses confesses, Israel is guilty of iniquity and sin. What do you think you and I should do when we become aware of our iniquities? What should we do when our wrongs come before us? Should we justify them? Should we excuse them? To do what Moses did. Bow our head and confess them. God, God, you are right. I want to say the same thing about me that you say about me. I want to say the same thing about my sin that you say about my sin. You are. That's what Moses is doing. And then from there, we, we see that he seeks forgiveness. Isn't it wonderful? God is just that he's merciful and gracious and patient and slow to anger and quick to forgive. And the only thing Moses wants to do is take him up on the offer. If this is who you are, God, then we need pardon because it's Israel's only hope. They cannot undo what has been done. And you cannot undo what you have done. They have two options in front of them. Punishment or mercy. This same scene acts out in the life of every human being standing before God. You will have two options. Punishment or mercy. And Moses opts to ask for mercy. And God, because he is merciful, grants it. He says he will take Israel as his inheritance. Verse 10, the covenant that the people broke is renewed and the relationship between God and his people is restored. So what we have here in Exodus 34, God's making himself known. The revelation of himself inspires worship. This worship leads to confession, forgiveness, and restoration. That was then... And there, but you know what? That is here and now. God still works the same way. This right here in Exodus is a blueprint about how to get right with God. God makes himself known. How does God make himself known? Well, the scripture tells us. He makes himself known in creation. It's hard to deny the existence of God when you're staring at a beautiful sunrise or holding a little baby or listening to a cardinal song. The heavens declare the glory of God. In Romans chapter 1, we say that the, the creation makes it so that people are without excuse when it comes to God. Because, because everybody should look around and say, God made this. So he makes himself known through creation. He also makes himself known through his Bible. What a blessed, blessed book that we have the privilege to hold in our hands and, and not everybody does and it tells us who God is and it tells us what God is like we do not have to come up with our own versions we do not have to come up with our own ideas we simply have to read and believe by faith God makes himself known through the Bible and finally and most significantly God makes himself known through his son 
We are blessed today with something Moses longed to see and did see and would see. The glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. You see, if somebody today were to pray Moses' prayer, God, show me your glory. The answer from God would be, I already have. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, listen, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Apostle John, speaking of Jesus, whom he refers to as the word of God, says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God himself, the glory of God that was seen, beheld by countless thousands as he lived on this earth. As the glory of God, as the image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of deity dwells, Jesus is everything God says he is in Exodus 34. Think about it. Jesus manifests every characteristic that we have considered so far. He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love to thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression of sin. Jesus forgives sin. Now hang in here with me for just a few more minutes. You might feel like it's going to get a little technical, so fasten your seatbelt. We'll get through. But for sins to be forgiven, have to be atoned for. And we have seen this already, right? A few times in the book of Exodus, we see this principle developed in greater detail uh, in the Old Testament system of animal sacrifice, where the sins of people are transferred to an animal which is then slain. The sacrifice of the animal is a visible, real demonstration of the seriousness of sin, of the guilt of sin, of the price of sin, which is death. The sacrifice represents justice because sin must be punished. But it also represents mercy. One receives the sentence on behalf of many as a substitute so that people don't receive what they deserve. Now, the ritual of animal, animal sacrifice, which would become part of, of Israel's religious worship, would be performed regularly because sin is an ongoing regular problem, and it had to be regularly atoned for. Most notably, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would shed the blood of a goat as a sin offering for the nation, as a sin offering for all the people, until Jesus. When Jesus came, the book of Hebrews says, he did not enter the most holy place with the blood that was not his own, but he appeared once for all to do away with sin, catch this, by the sacrifice of himself. The death of Christ on the cross was a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Perfect atonement 
offered by the perfect sinless Son of God who gave his life a ransom for many, who died on the cross in the place of and for those who would believe in Who died on the cross. And we leave this morning, I think, with the image of the cross in our minds because it more than anything answers that question of who God is and what God is like. It is at the cross where mercy and justice meet. Is he a God of justice? Yes. Sin must be punished. Is he a God of mercy? Yes. Because he took the punishment Who has believed what he has heard from us, Isaiah writes, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquity. Hearing that and knowing that it foresees the earthly life of God's own Son ending as a sacrifice for us. Tell me now what in your deep heart do you conceive God if you have not would you return, worship, confess, seek forgiveness, and be restored? And and sing our concluding song this morning. It's number 372 if you're looking in the hymnal. 372. Feet of 